And this morning we're going to talk about rest. I'm very excited for this morning. I'm very excited to bring you a message on on what it looks like to rest. And I hope you're encouraged today, and I hope you leave today better prepared to rest in your life. Now, if you've been here before, you might be wondering this morning why I'm not wearing a bow tie. And if you haven't been here before and you're wondering that, that's kind of fun. But um, I normally wear a bow tie um, because of one of the professors I worked for at Moody. Um, Whenever I put on the bow tie, it's a reminder of the way I was taught to study and communicate the Bible. But um, I cannot tie bow ties. And Jess is at a wedding <laughs> this um, week. And um, so, yeah, so let's just, I'm just going to be honest up front. Um, okay, so, so the super long story is like three years ago, when, the first time I got to preach, um, I was so stinking nervous about tying the bow tie. And I was so nervous about preaching that, that the morning of the sermon, like an hour before, like at eight o'clock, I'm, I'm back in my office looking at pictures and trying to diagram. And what I was coming up with did not look at all like a bow tie. And Jess came in and said, here, I'll help you. And so she helped me, and it took her like five minutes to figure out something that I'd put a whole lot of time into. Um, And then once she tied it, we prayed together. And after we prayed, she said, I really like doing this with you. We should make this a thing. And so every time I preach, when Jess is in town, she ties my bow tie for me, and then we hold hands and we pray. And it is how we begin a sermon. And so, so for today, I, I could have figured out how to tie a bow tie, and I can hide behind the idea of, well, I didn't want to take Jess's job, but I'm preaching on rest today, and I'm talking about things that are and aren't essential, and learning how to, bow tie, uh, learning how to tie a bow tie for me is not really that essential. I, I'm still able to preach. I, I hope that I still preach with the same method and the same intention as I study the Word of God. The, the bow tie is not the only reason I preach. Um, but, but so as we talk about rest today, it is a visual example of a way I chose to rest this week because I could have spent time watching YouTube videos and trying to figure it out and then this morning could have fumbled through it. Or I could have asked someone besides my wife to help me tie it, but that just seemed like cheating on her. And so I did not do that. Um, Today we're going to talk about rest, and as we talk about rest, I want to tell you up front that this has been a week that has not been very fun. Um, And I say this a lot because whenever I study the Bible a lot, I come away going, wow, why am I so far away from that picture? Um, But rest especially is something that I do not do well. Um, And and my gut um, is that most of you do not do it well either. Um, and, And Rest is hard um, because we have so much we need to do. One of the things that I always reflect on is when I get a chance to go on a vacation or get a chance to take a few days off, usually by the time I get back to the office, I have more on my plate than when I went on the vacation. And usually when I'm on vacation, I feel the pressure of what's coming. And, And this picture that I'm talking about is not a good thing. I'm, I'm not saying, well, you know, it's just the, the realities of life. What I want to talk to you about today is that the Bible presents a picture of rest very different than what we think. And when we look at its picture of rest, it shows where our priorities are and where our heart truly is. And so that is our goal today, is to look at this definition of rest. But before we jump into that, I want to give you a few things that I don't think rest is. Um, in the Bible, the word that we're using for rest, we're going to see it's sabbat or sabbat, depending on how you pronounce the Hebrew. Um, and it does sound like Sabbath, but the word for Sabbath comes from this other word. Um, and, and that's the word we're going to look at. But before we look at it, the, I don't think rest is sleep. 
When I think about the word rest, I think about sleep because, oh, I need some more rest. I need to sleep more. But the idea of rest in the Bible is something active, and sleep is something passive. When you sleep, you're not really in control. Like you're just, it's, it's something you have to do, you need to do. But, but I do not think that rest and sleep are the same, or at least in the biblical definition of rest we are going to look at. I also don't think the focus of rest is on, I need to take some time for myself and recharge my batteries. Um, that's, I will tell you, on Monday of this week, when I started preparing for this sermon, that is the picture that was in my head is, oh, I'm going to give people some ideas on how to really recharge and how to, how to really spend some time to get refreshed and energized and go live for the Lord. And I, I had this picture that I was moving towards, and then I read the, the first passage we're going to look at. And so we'll open that in one second. Um, we are also covering a scope of the whole Old Testament, which I think will be really fun. Um, we're going to cover a lot of ground. I hope you enjoy that, because um, how, how can I preach on rest without being as little restful as possible? But as we start, I'd like to pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you that your desire is to give us rest. We thank you that your desire is that we would rest in you, that we would depend on you, and, and that we would just breathe and dwell in your presence. And as hard and challenging as it can be for us to rest, Lord, we thank you that um, your Bible provides us with a picture of rest that um, should challenge us and should help us move forward in how we live for you. I, I pray today as we look at this that you would just open our eyes to where we are blind and, and just give our hearts just a check and, and just cut us deep if we do not rest in you. Cut us deep if we depend on ourselves so deeply. I, I, I pray, Lord, that, that today you would speak through me, that your spirit would be moving in this room, and that we would all come away with a better idea of rest and a conviction to go out and live transformed lives as those who rest in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The first picture of rest that happens in the Bible is in Genesis 2. Um, and um, this, is a pet, this is actually probably my biggest pet peeve in the Bible. And okay, some of you might be like, Matt, you're not allowed to have pet peeves about the Bible. Um, so it says Genesis 2 verses 1 through 3. Like it's a new thought because there's Genesis 1 and now we're in chapter 2. But Genesis 2, 1 through 3 are actually the end of the story of creation in Genesis 1. For some reason, in the 13th century and 16th century, the people who put together the verse numbers and the chapter numbers said, you know what, these three verses, we're just going to put them in chapter 2. It's really weird. It's really weird. And so I want to tell you right up front that Genesis 2 verses 1 through 3 are day 7 of the seven-day creation cycle. Some people think of the days like God created the earth in six days, but God's creation picture took seven days. In, in day one, he created light and darkness, and he goes through, and each day as he finishes creation, he speaks, something is created, and he says it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good. And on day six, God creates humanity in his own image, and he says it's very good. There is now a creature with delegated authority on earth that is made in the image of God, and God has created a perfect creation in which we are to live. And that is the picture set forth. But the story of creation does not end at very good. The story of creation ends, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. 
the picture of rest here, the word behind rest is a word that literally means to cease, to stop doing. And so when it says God rested, it's saying he stopped from all his work that he had done. He got, when it says because on it God stopped from all his work that he had done, the idea is God no longer is doing this. It's no longer essential. When God finished creation on day six, day seven, God said, I no longer need to create and this cycle is now complete on my day where I cease doing what I was doing. It's no longer essential for God to create. Creation has been put in motion by God. And, and so this picture is the picture of rest that we are going to look at today. I think the best definition of rest that I've come up with is to cease to do the non-essential. Resting is to cease to do the non-essential. And Jess, if she were here, this, she's not here, so I'm allowed to do this. She doesn't like when I do these kind of double negative type things. But I think that this is the question of rest. Is what I'm doing essential? And the answer to that a lot of times I think we're going to find is no. Um, and, and we're going to go very deep into this. But, but I do want to tell you up front, we, we should ask the question, what is essential? Breathing. Breathing is essential. And now that I'm talking about breathing, I want to point out that you don't think about breathing. But as soon as I say you don't think about breathing, you start thinking about breathing. And so the illustration falls apart. But now that you're thinking about breathing, think about the fact that you don't normally think about breathing. Breathing is something we do. It is essential. By the way, our breath, if we look in Genesis 2, we see a picture of God breathed life into us. Our breath is from God. And so even that is something, it is essential for us, but it is something that has been given to us. What is also essential is dependence on the Lord. We need to depend on the Lord. I, in everything we are given in our life, and everything we work hard for, the, 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 in, in all aspects of our life, what we receive comes from the Lord. So what is essential is breathing and depending on the Lord. That's it. That's the whole picture of what is truly essential. And, and we're going to talk because, because there's, there, we're going to talk a lot about this because right now some of you might be like, well, I have to take care of my kids. I have to do these things. And you're right, you do. The idea is not to rest all the time, but God worked for six days and he rested for a seventh. The next time we see rest come up in the Bible is when God institutes the Sabbath in Exodus 16. Now, a, a really important um, note. Um, so, so Exodus 1 through 15, God, sends Mo, God uses Moses and, and sends Moses. Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go so they can worship the Lord. And, and Pharaoh says no over and over. There's the 10 plagues. And then eventually Pharaoh says, fine, you can go. The Israelites leave. They come up to the Red Sea. And then the, the Egyptians chase after them. They cross the Red Sea. And the Egyptians go in. And the Lord wipes out the Egyptians. And then the Israelites on the other side of the water. For the first time, it says they finally believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then they worship him. The first like big worship song in the Bible is this Exodus 15. And then Exodus 16 begins and the people who have just worshiped God after this amazing act are grumbling, hey God, you can wipe out the entire Egyptian army, but we're hungry. And they grumble and they complain. And so God tells them, all right, I'm going to provide food for you. And they're given manna from heaven. And it's every morning when they wake up, after the dew leaves the ground, there, there is these pieces of bread for them to eat that are, I, the description of them is that they're just amazing to eat. And every evening there's going to be quail for them to eat. And, and so God is providing for them. And in the picture in Exodus 16, God says, I will provide for you. And, and each day only take enough for that day. And so day one happens and, and the, the night cycle goes. And then in the morning, 
um, the camp reeks. Why does the camp reek? Because many of the Israelites did not believe that, that God said, just, just take enough for today. They, 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 they've been living in slavery. They've been living in fear. They've been living in a place where they didn't really get to make their own decisions. And now there's all this free food on the ground. And even though God said, only take what you need, they decide, I'm going to take more just in case he doesn't come through tomorrow. And so the, all of what they kept extra, it, it smells, uh, it just, it reeks, and the whole camp reeks. They don't have like a, a way to get rid of the waste quickly, and there's worms, and so it's just disgusting. And God tells them, will you not listen to my commandments? Will you not obey me? And then, and so this cycle happens, though, but, but after that day, the people learn, and they learn we can depend on the Lord, because the next morning when we wake up, he will provide again and again. And we come to day six, and on get, day six, they are told to gather twice as much, and, and uh, they told Moses, and Moses said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. And, and so for, for the first five days, if they kept it overnight, it would, would reek and smell bad, but, but the, and there'd be worms. But this time, God says, do it. it it'll be fine this time. And so it was. But on the seventh day, some of the people still went out to gather. And when they did, they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The first picture of the Sabbath is a day where God provides enough for his people to just depend on him and not have to work on that seventh day. The, the idea is it's not essential for you to go out on day seven. I provided enough for you on day six that on this seventh day, you need do nothing. Just rest, breathe, be. Just, just look at how you had to do nothing today and look how I provided for you. That is the picture of the Sabbath as presented when it's first brought up. God is trying to show them, you can depend on me, I will provide for you. Cease to do the non-essential, rest in me. And now we're going we're to go on a, a jump here because we're, we're, we're now leaving Exodus and now we are going into Leviticus where God begins to give the people, they've got this picture of work for six days and on the seventh day rest that has now come about and God will provide for them on the seventh day. And now God tells them, the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. So now he's talking about land keeping a Sabbath. And now if, if you're like me, when you read this verse, the first thing you think is, well, if the people aren't working on the seventh day, then the land will also rest on the seventh day. But when you go one step or one verse further, you see that God is talking about a year. For six years you shall sow your fields, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. Okay, so I want, I want you all to think about something. The Israelites, when they entered the promised land, they were an agrarian society, which means they were a bunch of farmers. They're not even in the promised land, and God says, hey, when you get there, by the way, every seventh year, just don't work. Just let it go, and, and I'll provide for you. I think that would take a lot of faith. 
Um, and, and God tells him, you shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vines. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. So not only are you going to just not tend the land and not, to, and not sow and not, not farm the land, you're also not going to go out into the land and what it still grows on its own, you're not going to harvest anyways. You're, you're going to really give the land a year of rest. That's, that's really challenging. I, I thought about in our modern culture, this is not something we can immediately one for one. If three, I've been at Springbrook three years. If three years from now I went to the elders and said, hey guys, biblically I should really take the year off. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I'd get in trouble. And most of you in your jobs, if you tried to do that, I, I don't think your bosses would say, oh, that's in the Bible. Let's do that together. Let's just take a, right? Like it's, this doesn't one for one with us. And we need to recognize that up front. I am not advocating right now um, students, when you hit sixth grade, you shouldn't get a year off before seventh grade. Um, that'd be kind of, that'd be kind of, yeah, next year, next year, between seventh and eighth, maybe. So we'll talk. So, but, but the, the, the idea here is God is telling them, I want the land to rest. And, and there's a tension immediately of like, so what are we going to eat? God responds to that. He says, the Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. So that list, God says, the land will still provide everything you need, everything your servants need, everything the workers need, everything your animals need, everything your family needs, and everything even the wild animals Need. So not, even the animals not in your care, everything that lives in the land that God has provided in that year of rest, God will provide enough for it. That is the picture of the Sabbath year. God says, I will take care of it. And, and so God has this picture for the Israelites. When you enter the land once every seven years, I want you to just recognize how non-essential this is. I can provide everything you need. Cease doing what you don't need to do. It's this beautiful picture of God saying, I will provide for you, depend on me, rest in me, and let me take care of you. And it goes on in Leviticus 25, as it keeps going, it says, and you shall count out seven weeks of, of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall be given you 49 years. Okay, so that is the most confusing sentence in the world, but um, seven in the Bible is a number of completeness. And, and God here is trying to make sure he hits you over the head with the idea of completeness. Because he could have just said, you shall count 49 years. But no, we have to say seven weeks of seven years so that the seven... Uh, the, the idea here and the picture here is the 49 years is a complete cycle because the land has now rested a seventh time. And what are they to do in, after that 49th year? They're to sound the trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. So God puts forward this picture to the Israelites of once every seven years, you're going to rest for a year. You're going to let the land rest. And, and every 49 years, the, the 49th year would be a rest year, by the way, because it's a multiple of seven. Every, every 50th year, you're going to do a full reset of everything. And, and what this meant was if I was a farmer and I had a few bad years and I was struggling to feed my family, I might sell the rights to the crops of my land to, to my neighbor or to someone else in Israel. And then 
at whenever the next year of Jubilee was, that land would revert back to me. And the idea here was that the, the point of the land was not for the people to gain massive amounts of wealth and power. The idea of the land was for God to provide for them and th- for the people to live in the land where God provides for them. And so if somebody's land was not well taken care of, and if the, like at the end of every 50-year cycle, the picture was that that land would be returned to that clan. So each Israelite would get their, in theory, would get their land back in that year. And it would be a year of rest again. And so God is setting up a cycle where eight out of every 50 years, the land is going to rest. And at the end of every 50th year, the land is going to revert back to who owned it in the first place. This is the picture of what God desired for his people. And, and if they ask, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather the crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. God basically says, Every, if you're going to follow this out, I'm going to provide for you enough, not just for the year of rest, not just for the two years of rest. I'm going to give you enough to last you a third year out. And, and I... When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat it, eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. The picture here is God is telling the people the the way that you survive, the way that you get food, the way that you get what you need, it's from me anyways. Depend on me, rest in me, let me take care of you. That is the picture that God has for his people here. As they're, they're not even in the promised land yet, he says when you enter, this is what I want this to look like and this will be well for you. And, and he's setting this up so that the people can rest in him, so that they can enjoy the land and he promises them, if you will be faithful to me, this is the faithfulness you can depend that I will do this for you. In Leviticus 20, now Leviticus 25 and 26 are all one long unit. God is setting a picture of the land and of how to rest the land and how to live in dependence on God in the land. And in Leviticus 26, he continues that same idea. It says, you shall not make idols for yourself or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and re- reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Now you may wonder why the idea of gods shows up here. This seems kind of out of place, but if you've ever heard there's a god that they worship a lot when they're in bad places called Baal, B-A-A-L, um, he, he is a god of storms. And the Israelites, would, so in Israel, you, you had this land that did not have a lot of sources of water. And so it was very difficult to irrigate crops. And so the crops were fully dependent on rain. And, and so this starting idea in Leviticus 26 is, if you depend on me, I will provide for you. But if you go to other gods, no, don't even do it. Don't even think about doing that. Because if the people decided in the seventh year, we're not going to let the land rest, they're basically saying, Lord, we don't want to depend on you. And so then what they would do, no one was an atheist in this day. The idea was you served one God or a different God. And so there would have been people that would have said, you know what? We don't need to take this year off. We can make more and amass more wealth for ourselves if we worship Baal, because he is the God of storms and thunders, and, and he will give us what we are asking for. He will give us rain so that we can move forward. And there is picture after picture in the Old Testament of how well it went for Israel when they worship Baal. Not well. Um, but so we go from here, and, and God gives them a picture. We're, we're going to look at an if-then statement. So if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then 
I will give you your rains in their season. I, I will provide so that the land provides. And the land shall yield its increase. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest. And the grape harvest shall last to the, end, to the time of sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. If you follow my pattern of rest, if you are dependent on me, you will eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. This promise isn't over because it keeps going. And I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword." So if you let the land rest and recognize that it's from me, I'm the source of, your, of what you need to survive. I'm the source of everything that is essential for you. If you do that, if you rest in me, you will not lose in battles. And it, it won't be because of your numbers. It will be because I will go before your battles. And we're not done yet. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. You will have so much abundance that you'll have to get rid of stuff because you'll have so much new. And, and this is in a society where the idea of getting rid of old store would have sounded ridiculous unless it had gone bad. But God is saying, you will have such an abundance that you'll get rid of the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul, my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and it will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. The picture of resting the land, at, at the heart, in this promise of if you will follow, then all of this will happen, is God is saying, I took you out of slavery so that you could live and dwell with me and depend on me and I would provide faithfully for you. Do not enter this land and enslave yourselves. Because that's at, what's at stake here. Because if they say, you know what, God says I should rest a year, but if I work extra, I'll get more. God is saying, you won't. Don't enslave yourselves to this idea of this is what you need when all you really need is me. And we go on from here. Um, we're going to look at another if-then statement. And, and this next if-then statement starts a negative section. Um, because God says, but if you will not listen to me, so here's our first if, but if you will not, and I'm going to fly through these seven, there's seven if statements here, but if you will not listen to me, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, and if in spite of this, you will not listen to me. So God says in these first three, if you don't do this, things will go poorly for you. And then he says, and if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power. And essentially, when it says, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, it's saying, I will make it so nothing can grow here. It will all be dry and a wasteland. Then, if you walk contrary to me, so if you still walk contrary to me and will not listen, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you. And, and, and so, the, the picture of what we saw in those promises and the other if-then are now being broken down. And, and if... The sixth time, if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, 
then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And then finally, but if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, after the last six ifs, if over time you will not follow me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest it did not have on your Sabbath when you were dwelling in it. There's a picture, and there's two sides to the picture. Side one is, if you will live this way, I will provide so much for you that you will have such security And you will live in the freedom that I offer you if you will just depend on me and recognize I provide everything that is essential for you to live. But if not, my land is going to rest. You may not rest, but my land will rest. And my land will rest without you. The, The beautiful picture here is that God is basically saying, I want you to rest with the land. I don't want to have to remove you from the land in order for the land to take care of itself. God is saying, I want you to depend on me so you, like the land, can just rest in me. Rest is to cease to do the non-essential, and God begs his people to follow after this. He says, please do this, because I don't want to do the punishment of each if, and then let the land lie desolate. I want you to rest in me in the land. Depend on me. Now, we're going to go to the end of the Hebrew Old Testament now, um, and I'm it's Second Chronicles. And if any of you brought a physical copy of the Bible, um, if you go to Matthew 1, and then you look backwards from Matthew 1 at, at the Old Testament, you get confused because it says Malachi. You can't read this, but that's really what it says here. Um, but, but so here's the thing, and, and we're going to go nerdy for a moment. Um, this is a word, Tanakh. Um, This is in your bulletins. Um, The Tanakh was the Hebrew Old Testament. Somewhere, somebody decided the English Bible would look different. Um, It's not that we have different books. It's just that we order them and group them very differently. Um, In the Hebrew Old Testament, the the 12 minor prophets, like Obadiah, Jonah, Malachi, um, they were all one book. And it was just called the 12 minor prophets. And 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, both of those books and 1 and 2 Chronicles in the Old Testament It was just Samuel, but Samuel was so long it took two scrolls, and so when we brought it to English, we said, so there's a first scroll and a second scroll, first Samuel, second Samuel, but they're really just one book. New Testament is different. When you see numbers in the New Testament, it's different. It's a different letter, and they're a lot shorter, so it makes more sense, but the Tanakh was the Hebrew Bible, and it stood for the Torah, which was the teaching, which was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses. And then there was the Nevi'im, which was the prophets, which was Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then those 12 minor prophets. And finally, the Ketavim. So you see the T, the N, and the K, the Tanakh. Um, The the Ketavim was the writings, which was Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah as one book. They're meant to be read together. It's very interesting when you do that. Um, and finally, Chronicles. And 
so this is, this is just important because I'm trying to prove to you that I'm going to the end of the Old Testament. It doesn't really change how you're going to read the Bible probably, but I would encourage you, it's just something to keep in mind because it's very interesting how the Hebrew people read their Bible. So we come to this final story. This is the last full story in the Bible before the, the kind of the epilogue or conclusion in Second Chronicles. We come to the last king of Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. He did not want to depend on the Lord. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them God, the Lord, brought up against Israel, the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon." And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the king of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. When the final judgment and final exile came to Israel in the Old Testament, that exile came specifically because the people refused to rest. And and I want to show you the completeness of this rest, and so we have to do some maths. Um, That's the British word for math. Some of you may know. Um, So so we talk about, in, in that passage, it says 70 years the land lay desolate. So we have 70 Sabbath years. And if we want to figure out how many years total were they not celebrating the Sabbath years, we would times that by seven, and we get 490. So there were 490 total years where the Sabbath year was not observed in Israel. Now, in 1080-ish B.C., Saul becomes king. And it's within like two or three years, one way or the other, there's some arguments about that, but we're pretty sure right around 1080 BC, Saul becomes king of Israel. In 587 BC, Jerusalem falls. It's 490 years. When When the land lay desolate for the 70 years to fulfill the Sabbath, The reason was that from the moment Israel became a nation, never once were they willing to depend on God in this way. Never once did they let the land rest. Never once did they follow this command that at the end of Leviticus, God is using as the big idea of, will you follow me? Will you depend on me? Will you rest in me? Will you recognize that in everything you do, What is essential is what I provide for you. Rest is to cease to do the non-essential. 
And, and the, the question right now, church, that, that we need to ask, and as we ask this, I want you to know that there's a giant log in my eye. And I have been working all week to try and take it out, I, and, and I cannot um, right now. It's, it's too hard. I, I had this whole idea and this whole picture this week. I was going to take a full day off this week to rest. And I was going to document the rest that I did on that day to tell you about this morning. And then when I thought about what it would be to rest in order to tell you about why I rested, I realized that, well, that immediately becomes part of my job, and it's not really essential, so I'm not really resting. Rest is hard. Rest is something, rest is not passive, rest is active. Rest is choosing to not do what we don't need to do. And this is so hard in our culture. I want to tell you a couple things before I give applications. First off, I believe that if you can take a full day of rest and take a Sabbath day, you absolutely should. I also believe that the Sabbath day was originally meant for a Jewish people living in a Jewish nation where every single person did it. It was like every Jewish person was an employee at Chick-fil-A. They just, no one would have been working on a Sunday. I, I, I say this jokingly, but, but if you think culturally about it, it is not easy for us to just take a day off. I, I, Mondays are my Sabbath day here at Sprint. Like, it's the day I take for rest. Um, except this summer, I'm switching that up. If you have high schoolers, um, tomorrow night we kick off our high school ministry at 6 p.m., so bring them on by. We'd love to have them. Um, but but our, our Sabbath, I, the way I do my Sabbath, Jess works on my Sabbath day. She's a teacher. And so I generally do half a day there, and then Jess and I try and set aside half a day together. And we fail miserably all the time. Or our Sabbath time, in, instead of actually just resting in the Lord, and instead of doing that, what winds up happening is I go, well, I've, I've worked really hard all week. I, I forgot to mow. I better mow. And so I wind up, instead of resting, I, I go, well, if I don't mow, my neighbors are all going to hate me because we, we get like dandelions that are just super tall. We're really good at growing dandelions in our household. Um, but but the, the idea is that's, that's essential because I need to, I need to do you know, I need to take care of my yard, but is that so essential that I can't carve out time to actually spend with the Lord? And, and the picture that we need to come away from today is if I can't carve out intentional time with the Lord, then I do not depend on him at all. Because that's the purpose of rest. The purpose of rest is saying, I'm going to set aside time to recognize that everything I have, everything I receive, everything that is provided for me comes from the Lord and depends on him anyways. No matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try for something, if the Lord is not in it, it will not happen. And so if we do not take time to rest, we are saying by our actions and by our motives that, that we only rely on ourselves. We don't depend on the Lord in the way that we should. So my challenge for you, um, we're, we're going to do math one more time. So there are 24 hours in a day, and we are supposed to sleep, I think science says, eight hours some of you laugh. Um, some of you laugh for different reasons. Um, I know people who swear they can get by on four hours. Um, I know high schoolers who all summer will be sleeping until their parents yell at them to wake up for the fourth time. Um, but, but the idea is, I, I think we're supposed to get about eight hours of sleep based on science or something. Um, but, but so then there's 16 hours left in the day. And if you do 16 times 7, you get 112. So that means your wakeful hours are 112. And if we wanted to try and Sabbath for one-seventh of our time, we would divide 112 by 7, which would get us back to 16. And so my challenge for you is, do you have 16 hours in your week that you can rest 
in the Lord, that you, that you can breathe and depend on him. If you can do it in a day, great. If you can't do it in a day, do you set aside intentional time with the Lord? And, and parents, I want to say one thing here that's really important. This is something you can do with other people. And so parents, are you teaching your children how to set this time aside with the Lord? Because I, I don't see a lot of evidence of this in my life and in the life of people in this community as a whole. But if we do not rest, what we are saying actively by our actions is that we do not depend on the Lord. And it is such a sad and sorrowful thing when we live that way because what God shows us in the picture that we see in the Old Testament is this picture of God saying, depend on me and I will provide for you. Don't depend on yourself. Don't turn yourself into your God or your king. Don't enslave yourself to what you do not need to be enslaved to. Depend on me. Let me provide for you. And so that is the picture of rest, ceasing to do the non-essential, letting God provide, and taking time each week to just set aside in the Lord. My goal, in the, my goal going into this week is I'm going to account for 16 hours this week where I am intentional about setting aside time for the Lord. I'm going to make sure that that is a pattern that I follow this week, and that, that's my goal for the summer. Jess is not here, so she does not know it, but I'm going to be talking to her about now. She's not working this summer, um, and so, so now what is the time we're going to carve out together that we are going to rest together in the Lord? I'm, I'm going to do everything I can right now to be intentional so that by the end of the summer, I'm not wondering why I depended on myself so much, and I hope you'll do the same. I hope you will follow this and respond by, by being intentional and in ceasing to do the non-essential with the Lord and just recognizing just that, that when you depend on him, he provides for you so perfectly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for the picture that you give us in your word of rest. We thank you for your desire that we would not be enslaved to others, that we would not be enslaved at all. Your, your desire is not that we'd be your slaves, but instead that, that we would rest in you and you would provide for us. We, we thank you that the picture you have for us is a picture of resting and loving you and a, a, a picture of if, if we will rely on you, you will be dependable and you will provide for us all of our needs. We, we pray that, that you would break us of where we think everything we do is so essential. We, we, we pray that you would show us a better picture. I, I pray especially um, for parents here. That for, I know that our students have so much on their plates. I know that the schools push so much and, and the need to do more and to do more and to do more. And I pray that we as a church and for our families that we would model rest so that when the world looks at us and, and sees how well we live inside you and in dependence on you, they wonder what it would be like to live the way that we live in dependence on you. And, and I pray that that would be our testimony, that we rest and trust in you and that you give us what we need and provide for us all that is essential. We thank you that you are so good. And again, just for all the ways you provide for us, and we pray that we would be a people who practice the habit of resting in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.